You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. I'm back in the office today after a little trip. And uh, as we're getting started here, I hear that some elephants in the building are moving large objects. So it's a little bit of shaking in the studio for some reason. We'll hopefully uh, not have it bother us too much because I've been trying to schedule this one for a long time. There are some people who write who I find their writing just to be beautiful. Um, like I think they could write a cookbook and I would enjoy it. Those of you that remember Grayson Johnson, she was one of those. Uh, she wrote for us for a long time and is still doing stuff on her own. There's another Grace that has kind of filled that role for me lately. Gracie Olmstead writes, you've maybe seen her in the New York Times. Uh, I've got an article in front of me from women, uh, CT women, uh, that is fantastic. Uh, we share her stuff all the time, and I asked her if she'd be willing to sit down and have a chat with us, and she is kind enough to make that happen. So, Grace, welcome to the Strong Downs podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I listen to the Strong Towns podcast all the time, and so it's a huge honor to get to be included on the show today. That's really crazy. Thank you for that. That's very kind. Grace, could you give us a little bit of your background? I, I feel like your background is kind of foundational to the, the conversation I'd like to have. And I, I want to ask you about where you're at today, but I think to start, where do you come from? What's your backstory? Yeah, so my backstory is I grew up in rural Idaho in a town of about 3,000 people. Grew up in an area where my great, great, great grandparents homesteaded back in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, it was a river valley area in Idaho that was predominantly agricultural. And my grandfather and great grandfather were both farmers who lived in the town next to us. And so, you know, I grew up in an area where people recognize me by my last name more than my first. You know, any place where there's a lot of family history, there's this deep sense of connection that you have just based off of the larger context of family that you might have in that place. And so, um, yeah, that's, that's where I'm from. And I lived there up until I headed to the East coast for college. And so I've been in Virginia for the past 10 years now. Yeah. It's hilarious because growing up here, I had this thing that happened, uh, once to me, but I'm surprised it didn't happen more than that, where I would run into someone my age of the opposite sex who I was, you know, somewhat interested in and then come to find out in short order that they're related to me <laughs> because it's a very small place. I'm sure you have similar stories, maybe not that one, but, uh, but other stories like that in a place that small. Thankfully, not that particular story, but definitely lots of very small town connections in that sense of, you know, if you do something wrong, it will get back to your parents. <laughs> definitely strong as well. Just today, I dropped off some clothes at the dry cleaner. And I'm, I mean, like I go to this dry cleaner twice a month, three times a month. The woman knows me very well, but she's a little bit older. And she always asks me, what Marone are you related to? Um, because there's, you know, there's a bunch of them it's the thing about the last name, right? Yeah. Yep. Yep. 
describe a little bit where you live now today in, in Virginia. I mean, it's more than 3,000 people, but describe a little bit the difference for you. So, well, we were in, my husband was in the Air Force and stationed at Andrews Air Force Base for several years. And so we lived in Alexandria during that time, which is a beautiful place. And we really, really loved living there. But we moved out farther into the country two and a half years ago, just uh, for one, to be closer to family and friends that we had in this rural area of Virginia, but then also because we wanted to start building a little more community and to have a little more space so that we could grow some of our own food and, you know, just have, have some property. Um, so actually the town we live in now is only a handful, like probably three, 400 people. Like it's very small. Um, however, because of the larger context in Northern Virginia, it still feels like more of a bustling place, I think, than it did when I was, you know, in rural Idaho. There's just a very different sense of pace in Virginia. Um, and there's a lot of commuters. We definitely live in a bedroom community now. Although I will say, you know, whereas that might have not been true in the area I grew up when I was there, I think it is true of my hometown community back in Idaho now. It's predominantly a bedroom community. So it's it's kind of the sad tale of a lot of rural towns, I, as I'm sure you can attest to. Right. I've come to not very much like the red-blue descriptor for different Americas. Uh, because I I, t- I don't find it to be like a, a political breakdown as much as a kind of cultural breakdown. When we think about rural areas and we think about more urban areas, you're a person like me who has gone back and forth between the two and maybe is more rooted in the, the rural side of this. I want to push you a little bit and just have you talk a little bit about some of the things you maybe give up when you leave the more rural area, you know, the town of 3000 in rural Idaho and you move to, I mean, let's even say the years before you move to where you're at now, when you move to a more urban area, what does that change like? What are people who don't make that transition? What maybe are they not seeing about the rural area that you've experienced firsthand? It's something I used to think about a lot when I would ride the DC Metro system into the city Uh, you know, whenever I lived in Alexandria, I was only about nine miles from where I worked, but I spent probably close to two hours commuting every day. And that would be the same pretty much driving or taking the Metro. But I, I would spend that time sometimes reading books, sometimes on my phone, but oftentimes thinking about, uh, just the difference between kind of the sense of connection where I grew up to the sense of fragmentation that I oftentimes had in the city. And I think that that sense of fragmentation can also be true in a rural context, but at least traditionally speaking, it wasn't as strong. When I was growing up, there was a sense in which the the cloth of your life was very interconnected and there was a lot of life that you lived in one place. Whereas what I was increasingly experiencing in the city was that every piece of my life was kind of fragmented into various places. I didn't get to live my whole life in one spot. And I had this really deep thirst for that. I wanted to live 
a life in which I worked and worshipped and shopped and um, was part of associations, etc., in in one piece of ground and wasn't stretched so far and therefore um, oftentimes feeling like I was even a different person in different places depending on the needs of the place in which I was you know, serving, whether it was my magazine in the city or my church, you know, in Fairfax or my daughters once they were born in, in Alexandria. You know, there's a sense that you can be wearing so many different hats in so many different spots and your life doesn't have a sense of continuity, which in rural America, I always felt very strongly. And I think it comes a from the sense that a lot of people have long histories there, And in the sense that people see you on a regular basis, there's a smaller population. And so there's a deeper sense of membership that comes with that. There's a a sense in which people know each other on a more intimate level. And there's oftentimes a deeper sense of self-sustainability just from the sheer fact that oftentimes you need to be very much plugged in where you are and servicing a lot of your own needs based off of what is available. You know, where I grew up, we would have to commute quite a ways to go get pizza or go to the grocery store. So you ended up doing more yourself to save time, to save money. And so that sense of just living more of your life in one place, I think, was something that I really missed about rural America once I once I left it. I have a really good friend who he lives on Long Island now. I think he grew up in Long Island, but he's when I got to know him well, he lived in Queens. And you know, he's got an office in Manhattan and very plugged into New York and I you know, would never live I don't think outside of New York. Going around with him in New York, it's disorienting for me. And we're walking along and and if he would run into someone not necessarily even someone he knew, but he'd just, he'd meet someone. He's kind of a gregarious guy. There'd be this conversation. Where are you from? Well, I'm from Queens. Well, I'm from, uh, you know, wherever. And there was some bond there. It was interesting to see because in this context, it just felt like, how is, how is everybody here not completely anonymous to everyone else? It felt very disorienting to me. When he came to visit me here, it was quite different (laughs) because we would have these, you know, like the guy at the grocery store. This is not everybody, but, but for the most part, like I grew up with this guy, like I went to school with him. I I know, yeah, I used to ride the, the school bus with him growing up. I know his kids, they play softball with my kids. Is it an intimacy thing? Is it a connection thing? Because you you talk to people who are in New York, say, after 9-11, and they say, like, we all felt like we were New Yorkers, like united in a sense by this kind of common vision of who we were now. I find it hard outside of this small town setting to relate to that. Am I missing something? I don't think so. I mean, you know, one thing Jane Jacobs wrote about so beautifully was this concept that we need to design cities in a specific way because you're interacting with strangers all the time. There's there's just not the level of intimacy, knowledge, or background that people share in cities. And you can contrast that directly to the fact that in a lot of rural areas up until recently, there was a lot of shared history, background, and familial connections, or, you know, as you say, connections through education through the local high school. One thing I've written a little bit about more recently is that I think that as rural America is being transformed and changed as we see 
a lot of the old farm infrastructure undergo a lot of difficulty and even decline, you're going to see more strangers on the street in various parts of rural America. And so some of the principles that Jane Jacobs applied to a city like New York are actually going to be very necessary in small town Idaho, just because you're interacting more with strangers than you're used to. And I, when I've talked to farmers and other people back home, that is one of the most common things I hear is, you know, I go to the local supermarket. I don't see people I know anymore. I, I, I feel like a stranger in my own hometown. So it's, it's a new feeling for a lot of people in that context, which I think tells you that the, the fabric of rural America used to be very different, but I think it's undergoing a lot of changes in our own time. I struggle with how to deal with that too, because as someone who goes back and forth often, I love and appreciate and value the diversity of our cities. And the fact that, I mean, here in Minnesota, we have a very strong Somali population. We have a very strong Hmong population down in Minneapolis. I think these are beautiful and, and rightly celebrated by many people in those areas. I come up here to my hometown and the conversation because it's not transactional at all, because the bonds are actually, this place is in many ways more fragile. And so the connection that we have to each other living here is a little bit different. It's deeper in a sense. We're more like cross dependent on each other. It does create this very strange sense of I've got your back, you've got mine in a way. I think you know where I'm going with this, but there's a certain... I don't want to even say tribe mentality, but there's a certain, once two people are connected to each other, there becomes like an exclusivity about it kind of by nature. Help me out here a little bit. Cause I'm, I'm struggling to say this in a way that I think you could probably say it a lot better. In a rural context, membership matters in a sense, because you will be rubbing into those people for the rest of your life, you know, unless they move, but there's just fewer people, Right. So, so the bonds, I think, can be a lot deeper and stronger just by the sheer fact that your chance of running into them on a regular basis is often much higher. And the way in which you do business together, worship at church together, perhaps serve on a local board together, means that you're constantly going to be running into those people, uh, even going to, you know, softball tournaments together. I talked to a a editor for a local newspaper in small town Tennessee and one of the things he told me that's really stuck with me is that every time he penned an editorial or worked on a news story that he knew would be controversial he would always have in the back of his mind that he was going to see these people at his son's baseball games that weekend you know the people that were directly involved in either the implications or the meat of these stories themselves and so that influenced the way in which he wrote you know when you're when you're writing for the new york times you may never run into a single person who's i'm sure you will but you know what i mean there's not that incredibly tangible sense of i'm going to see this person in 3 days the way i write this should be very sensitive to that fact that's something that i think rural towns are very much influenced by and even governed by in the way that they go about their business. Let me give you an example. We have this hideous building that has been built in the park here in the center of town. As it's been going up, I've made a couple comments on social media about it, including 
lamenting that it, we were getting vinyl siding on this. Oh my gosh, it looks like a suburban house in the middle of our most gorgeous park. I knew my neighbor was on the park committee. I also knew the same person as an architect. Uh, I just got back from 10 days on book tour and he wanted to sit and talk about my comments on social media. And I actually apologized to him and said, I'm, I'm sorry. I still think the building's hideous. I still think the siding is really ugly. Let me put it this way. A lot of people say small towns are stifling. And I think that they are in a sense that I'm not free to slash and burn and say whatever I wanted to say, because yeah, there's a lot of ramifications for that. I'm, I'm not free to do some of the things that maybe in a more anonymous place I could do. But there's a reciprocal side to that too, in that, you know, there's a lot of depth of connection. I mean, this neighbor of mine, I went and gave a new copy of my book to and signed it and he wanted me to sign it. And I actually mentioned a little bit of his work in the book. There's this deeper respect and connection too. Can you talk a little bit about the two sides of that? Because I... I feel like it defines a little bit what a small town is. And I think it's sometimes difficult for people who are not from these places to grasp this. Well, I have an example actually from a book I'm working on right now that hopefully will be <laughs> published next year. I believe it's going to be published next year. Um, and it's about a small farm town in Idaho where my grandfather and great grandfather farmed for most of their lives. But there's a young woman I talked to in that book who has graduated from the local high school and she's off in college now. And it's a college in Twin Falls, Idaho. It's one where she went because she wanted to be uh, a little bit at distance from the community where she grew up. She wanted to put some space between her and, and that small town. And the reasons she gave were ones that I think were very familiar to me. You know, this sense of Everybody knows everybody's business. There's this sense of stifling familiarity where you never have the sense of freedom that you might have in a city or in a new place to be who you want to be, to do what you want to do. And she wanted to get out and experience more new things and kind of be her own person, all of which I, I completely understand. But, you know, she got settled here at this new college. She was moving into her dorms. And she saw a pickup truck in the parking lot of her dorm. And as soon as she looked at the license plate, she knew exactly who owned that car because it was another one of the graduates from her local high school. And, <laughs> she said, you know, the thing about a small town high school is, you know, everybody's license plate. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so she said she looked at that car and she knew in an instant that if she needed anything, if she were in trouble, she could go to that young man and he would be there for her. And she, cause she said, you know, that's just what we do in our small town. We, we look out for each other. So it was this really ironic thing where on the one hand she had left in an effort to kind of stake out a new, a new beginning for herself. At the same time, seeing that pickup truck belonging to someone she went to high school with filled her with a sense of comfort that if she did need anything, there was someone who had her back. And I think that's the really interesting tension we see in a lot of small towns. You wrote an article, Parents Need Villages, Not Just Public Policies. I love every part of this. I mean, I know you're quite a bit younger than me, quite a bit. I don't feel like I'm that old. I'm in my mid-40s. You're younger than me, but 
I remember when Hillary Clinton's book, It Takes a Village, came out. And I remember the conservative reaction to that. And it, it really tied into, maybe in a different era, the kind of partisanship and the, the, the negative socialism aspect of It Takes a Village. But I also remember struggling with that backlash because as someone who, particularly at that point, I identified very strongly as conservative, I remember looking at my own situation going, well, it kind of does take a village. I mean, I, I, I feel like I was raised in a, in a village atmosphere in a sense. I grew up until I was five on a road that today is called Marone Road. And you can guess why, because all these crazy people live there. Um, I was surrounded by aunts and uncles and cousins. When I was six, we moved up the road a little ways to the family farm that was homesteaded by my great-great-grandparents. The idea that I grew up in a village of people who kind of all helped raise me was just kind of self-evident. Can we start there with this idea of parents needing villages? What do you mean by that? And how, do you, how would you kind of put forth a concept of a, a village? As someone who has very young children at this point, one thing I've noticed is that having young children can be a very isolating and lonely thing unless you are either extremely proactive about building up community or you have other people in your life who are themselves very proactive about inviting you into theirs. But that was not something I really struggled with at all growing up because I lived in a place where that sort of proactive nature wasn't even necessary. You were living in proximity to people and brushing shoulders with them on a day-to-day basis. And so the village was there. Living in a place where there is no village all of a sudden means that you have to drive to get it, you know, or walk to get it or whatever. And and it can create some um, big burdens on people. But the reason I think it is so essential is because society used to be very multi-generational. Up until probably the last several decades, you would have oftentimes two to three generations living together. And the beauty of that was in the sense that the elderly were cared for by their children, but they oftentimes also served as babysitters for the youngest generation within a household. And so the bonds between the oldest parts of the family and the youngest members of the family was actually quite strong. And what I think is fascinating about that is not just that it created a financial gift to both the elderly who otherwise would have to rely on, you know, maybe the state or a nursing home to care for them, but it also took a financial burden off of the parents who otherwise would need a daycare or babysitters to care for their children. Um, You still see various aspects of society holding this up in their context. The Amish, for instance, will oftentimes once the parents of a generation get to a certain age, they build onto their house so that the grandparents move in, kind of a granny flat sort of uh, system. But we don't see it to the degree that we used to. And I think part of that is probably that Americans are more mobile. Um, but part of it is also that we have a very, a very generationally siloed culture in which we aren't really used to the idea of multi-generational living, multi-generational society being normal. 
And I think we've seen everybody kind of suffer as a result of that. You see single people suffer from not having lots of families that they can spend time with. I think a lot of single people benefit from having a friend or two that have kids or, you know, have a home they can be welcomed into where they can eat meals uh, with people who are older or younger. I think elderly people who maybe don't have grandkids or great grandkids would love to be more of a societal part of a place where young people are just around and a place where they have a servicing aspect to their life, which in many instances in today's society, they, they don't get that chance. So I think there's a lot of ways in which the strands that used to connect every generation to each other have been severely weakened. And of course, we can see how that impacts the elderly and creates a sort of loneliness and social isolation for them. We don't always talk about the way in which it impacts the younger members of our generation or the young parents of our generation and, and the the burdens that they feel on a regular basis. And so basically, when I argue for a village, I'm arguing for living in proximity to people who are from all different stages of life and therefore able to give to each other in a way that in our current society, it takes a lot of work to do. It isn't impossible, but it does take a lot more work, a lot more time and, and a lot more driving, I think, than it used to. The Harvard Business Review did a podcast that I listened to once where they they talked to someone about the differences between rural and, and urban areas. One of the things that struck me is they said, when you meet someone in an urban area, they'll often ask, well, what do you do? And when you meet someone in a rural area, they'll often ask, and I'll let you fill in the blank, what do you think they're, you're asked instead of what do you do? Hmm. Uh, where are you from? Yeah. What family are you? <laughs> yeah. You know, if they don't recognize your last name already, then they'll probably ask where are you from? If they do recognize their last, your last name, they'll probably say, Oh, are you related to which one? Right. So -so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you have two daughters, correct? Mm -hmm. Who's, who's watching your kids as we speak right now? Uh, my mother-in-law. Right. This is what I've found too, is that, you know, for us, uh, my wife and I have also two daughters. We've talked about moving. We've talked about leaving. We've talked about pursuing other opportunities. My wife is a award-winning, brilliant journalist. She now works for public radio. There's a ton of opportunities that the two of us would have in larger cities. One of the obstacles we've had is what would we do with the kids? Like who would help watch the kids? And it wasn't until I got older that I recognized my own preconceived notion of what that meant. Again, I'll go back to my friend in Long Island. Uh, when we talk about things like parental leave and you know daycare assistance and what have you, this would make a lot of sense to him because for him and his wife, they have a daughter. They are in this system where they drop their daughter off at the daycare center. They've got a, a person, a, a nanny who comes and watches the kid every now and then. And they're part of this economic transaction. For my family, I mean, even though I think financially we're doing fairly well and, and we could probably afford that, there was never even an option. We were always part of this, and I'll just call it village transaction. Can you talk a, a little bit about how maybe we would perceive things differently in different environments in terms of these transactions and, and particularly 
I feel like sometimes people who live in small towns or rural areas hear something like paid family leave and they're bewildered by it. Like they don't get it. They react to it way differently. And someone in an urban area, this seems absolutely common sense in a transactional way. And they seem like the rural area, like wouldn't you guys benefit more from this than even we would? What are we missing about each other in this dialogue? From being in the city for several years, I, I would have been at a point where, you know, I had to make some tough choices about, you know, how I was going to keep working and, and procure daycare or whatever for my daughters or, or stay at home and not work anymore. And, you know, all those decisions were building to a head because at that point I was too far from any family member to have regular assistance with with my daughters if I wanted to keep working. And frankly, as a writer, I've never made enough money <laughs> to really justify full-time daycare in the DC area because it is just incredibly expensive. I'll pitch in my wife, six years, I think, kids who went to daycare three days a week. And for those six years, my wife worked part-time, like 30 hours a week. We did not make any money at all. Her work basically paid for daycare and gas. She did it because the industry, the journalism industry, is such a, there's a limited number of jobs. She didn't want to take six years off because she didn't think she could ever go back. I'm with you. That's a financial decision that's really tough. Yeah. And so I think from those years in that context, I definitely built a great empathy and understanding for the need that a lot of mothers feel to have better paid family leave, maternity leave, to have better daycare and preschool options, to not feel like they are completely alone when it comes to figuring out how to provide for their families and make the money they need to survive, especially in an urban context in which, you know, you take DC, New York City, but even cities that aren't quite as large, the cost of living can get very high. And so there's a burden that you feel to be able to get food on the table or to pay the mortgage or the rent that that can really put a lot of pressure on families. So I tend to be pro-family policy because I see that there's a real need for it when you're removed from a familial village context, when you don't have anyone to lean on in terms of the social capital ties that otherwise might provide those needs for you. Now, in a rural context, it's funny because that question probably would have never even come up because I would have so many aunts, uncles, cousins, you know, parents, grandparents who would help provide a lot of that need in terms of childcare support. You know, if I were home with a baby after having that baby, they would have brought by groceries or helped with meals. It might have never been as strong and urgent of a question. Maybe it would have. I'm sure there's still people in that context, especially as rural areas become more mobile. You have people moving in and out. There's going to be that need there as well. But but in the context we're talking about of more of a village, which still exists in a lot of areas, there's just not that same question, that same sense of social isolation, which then leads us to rely on policy to fill the void. Part of the argument often that is made is that some of these public policy programs that maybe would really give people a lift up in an urban area where they don't have those connections, where, where they're really, really struggling deeply, 
actually undermine some of the the fabric and the uh, the reciprocal commitments that create that village. I struggle with this one too because I see it. I I, I live it. I understand it. Like I get that argument, but I'm I'm often like flummoxed as to what to do. How would you respond to that assertion? It's a it's a very interesting question, and I understand to some degree the sentiment behind it, but I do think that it's not a question that we should be asking in the sense that I think the answer right now needs to be both and, not either or, merely because we do see a deep need for assistance to come alongside people who are socially isolated. And there's a lot of them in America today. Their needs need to be met. And if their needs are not being met by family or the church or local associations, then something I believe needs to step up and and fill that void. That is neither an excuse nor an opportunity for churches, family members, and local associations to say, oh, okay, now we don't have to do anything. No, I think they should keep doing what they're doing and do more of it. And if they get to the point where they're providing for that need to such a degree that the social policy is no longer necessary, awesome. That's that's exactly what, you know, we would probably want. They're probably providing for it, hopefully providing for it to a greater and better degree than, you know, some sort of money-fed policy in a top-down situation would be able to. But I struggle with that sense of people saying, you know, if we do this, then people in a local, you know, context are no longer going to try to provide for the need themselves. That that means that then the people who would benefit from that policy are never going to get to see it implemented in their lives. And the people in that local context might not actually step up to the base. Uh, Hopefully they would, but they might not. And so I really believe that the answer right now at least has to be both and not either or. And my hope would be that churches, especially just because I come from that, that context and I believe very strongly in the role of the church should be stepping up to the plate and saying, you know, we need to be coming alongside moms, not only just in making sure that they have childcare, but making sure that they have food on their table on a, on a day-to-day basis, whatever the need is. Yeah, I don't know. I would love to hear more of your thoughts on that as well. But whenever I hear that question, I almost feel like it's a cop out. It's like we're saying, oh, you know, if if the government does this, then other people won't do it. Well, if other people were doing it, then maybe the government wouldn't be needing to step in. I get that point exactly. I think the best argument that I've heard has to deal with the uh, the kind of reciprocal commitment. I'll give you an example from my life. And I realize we're quickly running out of time. And we haven't even got to far. I have like this long list of things to talk about. We've gotten through like a fourth of them. I look at like my parents and there've been many times in my life where I've been like, I'm done. I'm done with this. Like you guys are driving me nuts. There's an underlying, in a sense, series of obligations that happen. When my parents come and help out with the kids, I can't turn around and say like, I'm not coming for Thanksgiving, you know? And that's a maybe a, like an easy thing. I mean, the, obviously these commitments run a lot deeper than holidays and stuff. I feel like some of that stifling aspect of a small town is actually some of this reciprocal nature. I can't do something completely antisocial here because I literally rely on the people around me, particularly the people closest to me, 
for my kind of day-to-day existence. I don't have the answer to this, and I really respect your answer, but I feel like this is where we're in kind of weird space. Do we do something destructive to the social fabric when we say, you know what, you, you don't have to keep that relationship up? I can see on one hand where, you know, if it's an abusive relationship, obviously we, we want to have a mechanism for people to get free of that. But if it's just like a relationship of, you know, now it's inconvenient. You know, you started out by saying, you know, the, we used to live more closely with our, our families, for example, you know, different generations. That is kind of stifling too at times. What's that trade-off between basically our own convenience and this deeper bond and connection? I can tie this to farming perhaps as an example of a way in which I've wrestled with it in that sphere, because I think that farmers used to live in this deeply communal way uh, back when there were more farmers and they farmed less ground. They were very deeply reliant upon each other. And especially before the technology available was as efficient and big as it is today, there were a lot of needs that were provided by farmers caring for each other. You know, whether that was a barn raising or them helping put up hay every harvest season, you know, there was a way in which they relied on each other. Now, as we got into the 20th century, of course, the federal government started providing a lot of these needs that farmers had, whether it was via subsidies or crop insurance programs, or whether it was um, incentivizing them to grow at such a scale that they ended up buying out a lot of their surrounding farming neighbors. But, But the relationship we see today that farmers have the strongest relationship in terms of economic incentives is not the relationships they have with their neighbors, but the relationships they have with the federal government, with the state. And I think what you're saying is, you know, we can see a similar thing within a lot of communities that the relationships which neighbors once might have had with each other that were contractual and reciprocal, they now have with the state instead. And, you know, it is a problem, I think, because we want to strengthen communities. We want to see local empowerment and we want people to have more of a sense of agency within their lives, which I think can actually be threatened when you have a stronger relationship with the state than you do with your neighbors and your own local context with people who know you. But for instance, in the realm of farming, I think that one of the problems I see going forward is that there's so much damage that has been done by the federal government (laughs) in the context, in the realm of farming, you know, for them to pull out altogether and say, okay, we're just going to let you guys figure this out. You know, good luck to you. Go back to state of nature, right? (laughs) (laughs) It's, It's not exactly a solution that I see is actually working in a beneficial way. Right. Right. I would love, I would love to see them do less harm, But then I would also love to see them strengthening those social bonds again through investing the funds they have at their disposal in a more local and associative way. And perhaps one way we could rectify this problem on a local level with the social aspects of policies we're talking about, family policies, would be to see those dollars implemented and used more locally as opposed to in some sort of federal top-down program. But, you know, once again, I, I'm not I'm not a policy expert on family policy, so I don't even know what that would look like. I just know when it comes to farming, I've seen that there would be a huge benefit 
to the government investing in farm towns and farm regions, you know, as opposed to just nuclear families, nuclear family farms, to try and strengthen those bonds once more. And it makes me wonder whether we could see something really beneficial in a similar realm in family policy or just town policy. This is what our next podcast is going to be about. It's about the, the farm aspect of this. I know you have to go take kids to different places, and I, I respect that. People who want to follow your work, you've got a newsletter. What's the best place to get in touch with you? I'm on Twitter at Gracie, G-R-A-C-Y, Olmstead. And then I have a Facebook page under the same name. My newsletter is called Granola. And it's got little bits of all the wonderful things that I enjoy to write about. Farms, communities, the concept of place and why it matters. And then, of course, some book reviews and recipes, because I think that those are two of my favorite things and my readers enjoy them as well. So, Can we exchange Christmas cookies this year? Oh, my goodness. That would be so much fun. Let's do it. <laughs> I love sharing with people who, who love uh, baking. I absolutely want to do it. Let's chat again soon, okay? Yes. That's another aspect of small towns we could talk about is the Christmas cookie exchanges, which result in us all gaining 20 pounds by the end of the Christmas season, I think. I, I bake hundreds of them and people will comment like, what do you, you know, they assume that I eat them all. And I'm like, no, <laughs> my neighbors eat them. Like, this is so much fun. Um, yes. Thank you for the time. And uh, we will talk again soon. Okay. Sounds great. Thank you again, Chuck. Thank you. Take care. And thanks everybody for listening. Sorry, we had to cut that short. We actually had uh, more time scheduled, but we had some technical difficulties at the beginning. And then uh, when we got into it, uh, just ran out of time. I love Gracie. She, her stuff is so fantastic. And so we're going to keep this up. And I actually hope someday to make Gracie a regular part of our Strong Towns conversation because I, I find her insights and her way of framing things to be so much more elegant than mom, than mine. I think you got that from the questioning as well. I have this uh, like unformed kind of impulsive thoughts and, and she has just this beautiful, elegant way of expressing uh, the same kind of thing. So we'll continue to explore that. In the meantime, thanks everybody. Thanks for listening. Keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Take care. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.